Tonight we hope to cover Matthew chapter 25, and I say I hope because the chapter is a little bit long, but you can break it down into three very easy sections. It begins with a parable about the wise and the foolish virgins. And I'll just tell you at the very beginning, the whole point of that parable is that we should watch and be ready for the return of the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. The second parable, the parable of the talents, sort of explains to us just what it means to be ready. Isn't that a fair question? Jesus, you tell us to watch and be ready. What does it mean to be ready? What is somebody who is prepared for the return of Jesus? What does their life look like? That's answered by the second parable. And the third section of Matthew chapter 25 isn't really a parable at all. It's Jesus' description of the judgment of the nations, which my take on this is a little bit out of step. No, I won't say a little bit out of step. It's a lot out of step with the majority of commentators, but we'll get to that when we get to it later in the chapter. Matthew chapter 25. Now, we remember where we came from last time together in Matthew chapter 24. Jesus gave this remarkable series of predictions all connected with his glorious return and with the judgment of the nations and being ready for his return. As a matter of fact, at the end of Matthew chapter 24, he concluded with this very important parable, the parable of the faithful servant and the evil servant, again, about readiness. Now, following right upon that, beginning here in chapter 25, is another parable about readiness. Matthew 25, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now, there were three stages to a Jewish wedding in that day. The first stage was engagement. This was a formal agreement made by the father of the groom and father of the bride, sometimes when they were quite young. The second was betrothal. This was the ceremony where mutual promises was made, yet the marriage was not yet uh, consummated. The third was marriage. Approximately one year after the betrothal, when the bridegroom came at an unexpected time for the bride. And when the bridegroom would come, the bridemaids who were attending the bride would go out and meet the bridegroom as he came to the home of the bride and they would come with their lamps lighted because typically this was done during the night so that there would be an element of surprise and anticipation about it. And then they would bring the bridegroom and his companions into the house of the bride to her father's house actually to meet the bride and to take her to the wedding ceremony. Now, he says, ten virgins took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. This would be fully and completely just thinking of a bridal party here. Don't make too much of the idea that these women are called virgins. The idea isn't their, you know, exquisite purity or anything like this. These are just simply bridesmaids in the ceremony. And they went out to meet the bridegroom. The first two stages of the whole wedding or marriage ceremony have taken place. Now the wedding party, that is the ten virgins, Wait for the coming of the bridegroom for the bride. Now, verse 2. Now, five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. And while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. 
But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Well, verse 2 tells us that of these ten virgins who were part of the bridesmaids, so to speak, of this wedding party, five of the ten were wise and five of the ten were foolish. The, The wise ones were prepared for the coming of the bridegroom, but the foolish ones were unprepared. Please notice the distinction that's made here. I find it interesting that the distinction is not between bad and good. It it, it isn't between uh, those with forethought and those no forethought, uh, the the, the thoughtless and the thoughtful, but it's the foolish and the wise. It's those between who are thoughtless and those who are thoughtful. And while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. Now, it's interesting. There they are. They're waiting for the bridegroom. Verse 3 tells us that they took their lamps and took no oil with them. The five foolish virgins appeared to be prepared for the bridegroom because they had their lamps in hand. By the way, lamps here is probably not a very good translation. The idea is probably more like torches. These were not oil lamps that they would carry. Rather, these would be torches such as rags or ropes that would be soaked in oil put on top of a stick, and carried. Well, they all had their torches, and you might even say that the foolish ones had initial oil, or at least a little bit of something to light on top of the torches, but they had no oil to sustain the burning, and so they thought they were ready because they had their torches. Nevertheless, verse 4 tells us that the wise ones not only had the torches, not only had oil on their torches, but they also had oil in their vessels. They had backup oil, you know, sort of a supply of oil in a little bottle or something like that that they could carry with them. Well, there they are. They've got their lamps. Everybody has a lamp, but some of them have oil and some of them don't. Verse 5, while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. I find it interesting that the picture here is not that there's condemnation for the ones who slept. The wise ones slept and the foolish ones slept. The, The issue isn't between those who slept and those who didn't. The issue is between those who were prepared immediately upon waking up, and those who were not. You see, in the parable, both the wise and the foolish maidens slept, but the wise ones were prepared to act immediately when they were unexpectedly wakened. The foolish maidens were not so prepared. By the way, the sense behind that phrase in verse 5, where it says they all slumbered and slept, the the idea is of a deep sleep. They were all deeply asleep. And then suddenly, verse 6, At midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. And all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. At the unexpected hour, the bridegroom came for the bride and the wedding. The wedding party, all those virgins, all ten of them, immediately woke up and they began to prepare their lamps for lighting. But they all lit their lamps, but the ones without a supply of oil, their lamps immediately, their torches, we should say, immediately went out but the ones with a supply of oil and the extra supply of oil, their lamps burnt brightly. Now, the foolish maidens said, verse 8, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. 
The, the foolish virgins were unprepared because they lacked oil for their lamps. Now, I find it very interesting that in biblical imagery, oil is often a representation of the Holy Spirit. Without oil, the bridegrooms, the, excuse me, the wedding party, the, the, the bridesmaids, were not ready for the bridegroom. And you could say this, without the Holy Spirit, no one is ready for the return of Jesus. Now, please notice here, I don't think the distinction here is between spirit-filled Christians and non-spirit-filled Christians. You know that in some sense, that's a false distinction. There is no such thing as a non-spirit-filled Christian in one sense, because no one can be a true Christian without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. As it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. So in some sense, every Christian has the Holy Spirit. Now, I will admit, I think it is very true and very useful to point out that some Christians have what you might call a filling or a fullness of the Spirit and other Christians do not. But just for the presence of the Holy Spirit, you cannot be a Christian without having the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. So I don't think that Jesus was making a distinction here between what we might call spirit-filled Christians and non-spirit-filled Christians. The distinction is likely between true Christians and false believers. Nevertheless, we would say this. A key to Christian readiness is to be constantly being filled with the Holy Spirit. Wouldn't you say that much of the weakness in our Christian lives, much of the defeat, much of the lethargy in our spiritual life can be explained if we are not constantly being filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, what happened? The five wise bridesmaids who had their torches burning bright, they were able to go into the wedding party and celebrate it with the bridegroom and the bride and everybody else. The five foolish virgins had to run out, try to get oil at a late hour. I don't know how they did it. You know, parables don't explain all these interesting details. They had to come back at a much later hour. And when they came back, look at what it says in verse 10. The door was shut. And then in verse 12, it gets even stronger. Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. The penalty was very severe for the foolish maidens. They were not allowed to come into the wedding, and the door was shut against them. And we might say it was shut in the strongest terms. Now, everybody in the wedding procession was expected to carry his or her own torch. And if you didn't have a torch, it was assumed that you were not part of the wedding party. You were a wedding crasher, or maybe even a thief. And so the girls make the appeal, let us in, let us in. But man, you hear the reply of the bridegroom, right? The reply was very strict. The door was shut and the virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Doesn't that remind us of those words in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verses 22 and 23, where Jesus spoke of those who would do miracles, those who would prophesy in his name, those who would do amazing things in his name, and he would say nevertheless to them, depart from me, for I never knew you. Notice, when the door is shut, it is shut. This is a very decisive formula of rejection. It's not just the stating of a mere fact. No, no, no. These had the door shut against them. So what's the lesson of it? Look at verse 13. Watch therefore 
for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. You know, let me just review something that I spoke about last time we were together when we finished Matthew chapter 24. The absolute urgency of readiness when it comes to the return of Jesus Christ. You can know everything about biblical prophecy frontwards and forwards. Maybe you have a unique gift to understand the prophetic scenario forwards and backwards and every place in between, and you know everything. I mean, you know what 666 is, you know what the mark of the beast is, you know the false prophet, you know the woman who rides the beast, you know all these prophetic things from beginning to end. You could lay it all down and write all the books. But if you yourself personally aren't ready, I don't think you know much of anything about prophecy. That was the continued emphasis of Jesus when he taught about prophecy to stress readiness. Therefore, Jesus used this very strong parable to say, don't be one of the foolish bridesmaids who gets left out because your torch isn't ready. You're not prepared. You're not ready to be burning bright for the return of the bridegroom. It's a very simple, straightforward parable, but the lesson is something we must greatly take to heart. The point of the parable is simple. Be ready. The price for failing to be ready is too high. How many people will be greatly disappointed at the return of Jesus Christ because they thought that they would get ready, that they would get right with God at some later time instead of getting ready and getting right with Him now. That's the lesson of the foolish and the wise virgins. Now, somebody would have every reason to ask the question, well, Jesus, what is it that you mean by this readiness? What is it to be ready? And Jesus will begin to answer that beginning now at verse 14. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. So here's a man traveling to a far country. Therefore he calls his servants and delivers his goods to them. You should know that this was not a strange idea in the ancient world. In the ancient world, slaves or, 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 or servants were often given great responsibility. And oftentimes the safest and the smartest thing a man could do with his money is distribute it to the business managers that he had in his home, his servants, his slaves, who would wisely administer it while he was gone. Look, it was smarter than just digging a hole and putting it in the backyard or, or doing something like that for it. No, no, no. He says, listen, I'm going away. I'm going to entrust my possessions to my servants. And so verse 15, to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one talent. Now, a talent was not an ability. It's interesting how we use the English word talent and we use this word talent here. But a talent was not an ability, even though I would say this parable has application to our abilities. A talent was a unit of money. And as a unit of money, a talent was measured by weight, not by amount. So it was like saying a kilo. Well, a kilo of what? A kilogram of what? A kilogram of gold, a kilogram of silver, a kilogram of brass. You see, the value of a talent would depend on what metal it was and the quality of that metal. And so a talent would be worth at least perhaps 1,200 euros or dollars, and it could have a value of as much as hundreds of thousands of dollars or euros. 
the, the value of it could go from place to place. This is just what I, mentioned, what I want you to understand. A talent was not a little amount of money. A talent was a big amount of money. And so for the master to give one talent to somebody was to give him a lot of money. To give another one five talents was to give a really big amount. To give ten talents was to put a large, large amount of money in the hands of that person. Now, in the application of this parable, it's appropriate to see these talents as resources in our lives. And what are the resources of our lives? We have resources such as time, such as money, such as abilities, such as authority. How do we use these resources in our life? One more thing before we look at verse 16. Did you notice what it said in verse 15? The talents were distributed to each according to his own ability. The servants were given different amounts of money according to their ability. Now, one servant only received one talent, right? Yet we should see that was not a small amount. It was a significant amount of money that he received. But everybody received either more or less according to their own ability. The master knew what they could handle. All right now, verse 16. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid the Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So when he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me uh, five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also who had received two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Okay, so notice what these three servants did. First of all, verse 16 tells us that the man who received five talents went and traded with them. Uh, this implies a very direct action when it says he went and traded as if he was in a hurry to do it. With great energy, he went out and used that money, we would say, to go out and make more money. Now, we aren't told how they traded with their talents. Perhaps they loaned the money out at interest. Perhaps they used the money and bought things for them and then sold those things for more money. The point is simply this that they used what they had and they gained more by using. Now you can say a lot of good thing about the work of these two servants, the first two. First of all, they did their work promptly. They went out and did it. Secondly, they did their work with perseverance. Seemingly, they worked with the money for the entire time that the master was away. Third, you would say that they did their work with success. They were successful in it. The man who was given five earned five more. The man who was given two earned two more. And then when the master came back, they were ready. They were ready to give an account to their master. Now, just to pause right here before we talk about the reward, shouldn't you say that this is the kind of readiness that Jesus talks about? 
He gives each one of us resources. He gives us time. He gives us abilities. He, he gives us money. He, he gives us things in our life. And we have the responsibility to use those resources that God has given us for the glory of God and for the extension of his kingdom. That is what being ready for the return of Jesus Christ is all about. Now, verse 21, he says to the servant who had five talents. He also says it to the servant who had two talents in verse 23. He says, you have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Did you notice that for the man who had five and earned five, and the man who had two and earned two, that the reward was the same for both of those servants? You see, each performed according, excuse me, each performed the same according to the resources they had received. Therefore, they both received the same reward. And in verse 21 and verse 23, they both read received the same compliment from Jesus. Well done, good and faithful servant. Look at what the master was looking for. Goodness and faithfulness is in the servants. Whatever financial success these servants enjoyed came because they were good and faithful. The master first looked for those character qualities, not for a specific amount of money. In other words, he doesn't say, well done, O doubler of my money. That's not the point. The point is that they were good and faithful, and out of being good and faithful, therefore, the money was doubled. I like what Spurgeon says here. Spurgeon says this, It is not, well done, thou good and brilliant servant. For perhaps the man never shone at all in the eyes of those who appreciate the glare and glitter. It is not, well done, thou great and distinguished servant. For it's possible that he was never known beyond his native village. No, not brilliance, not greatness. What Jesus asked for was faithfulness. And that's what came into these men's lives. So what's the reward? Again, verse 21, verse 23 explains to us that these men had the reward, enter into the joy of your Lord. Doesn't that have the echo of heaven about it? Doesn't that sound like the master is there inviting them into heaven? Enter into the joy of your Lord. The idea is that there's a place of joy that belongs to the master of these servants. And these servants are invited now to enjoy the joy of their master. Enter on into it because they were good and faithful in what the master gave them to do. That deals with the first two servants. But verse 24 tells us about the third servant. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. Very interesting, isn't it? It says, first of all, verse 24, the one who had received the one talent talent came. Notice this. The master judged each of the servants individually. If you were to take in each of the servants as a group or all of the servants as a group, their return was very good. With all three servants, how many talents were given? Eight. How many were returned? 20 or 15. Hey, that's really good. Eight given, 15 returned. But you know what? The master didn't judge them as a group, right? The master didn't say, oh, I know you, I gave you one talent and you only brought back one talent, but don't worry about it. The guy who had five brought me back five, so don't sweat it. That wasn't the idea. 
each servant was judged individually. Each one was judged on their individual faithfulness and effort. And then look at his excuse, verse 24. I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you have not sown. Now the servant who merely buried his talent tried to excuse himself because of the master's great power. Matter of fact, wouldn't you say that in some sense he described his master as being omnipotent? Think of those words. You reap where you have not sown. It's right there in verse 25. It says, and you gather... uh, and you, uh, excuse me, verse 24, and you gather where you have not scattered seed. Now think about that for a moment. Who reaps where they have not sown? Who gathers where they have not scattered seed? Someone who is so powerful that you would say that in fact they are omnipotent. They have all power. In other words, this is the way that the servant is putting it. Master, you are so mighty, you are so powerful, you don't need my help. You can do it all on your own. You don't need my help. I like what F.B. Meyer said about this. I think he expressed well the thinking of this servant. He said, I can do very little. It will not make much difference if I do nothing. I shall not be missed. My tiny push is not needed to turn the scale. So I won't even bother. And then look at what he says in verse 25. It's very interesting. Verse 25, he says, And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. What's so funny about this? He's almost proud of himself, isn't he? Right? Look, master, here it is. You have what is yours. Exactly what you gave to me, I give to you back. But no improvement was made upon it whatsoever. This servant seems to have had no idea how much he had displeased his master. Now, can I say something in favor of this third servant? In his favor, at least he understood what he had been given belonged to his master. Do you see what he says in verse 25? You have what is yours. At least he knew that it still belonged to the master. Many people to whom God gives gifts and resources, whether it's the gift of time, whether it's monetary resources, whether it's talents and abilities, whatever you want to say, they somehow think that God gives them those gifts and then those gifts belong to them. In favor of this third servant, he has advanced beyond where many Christians are today, where at least he will recognize that these things still belong to God. Again, Many modern servants of God think that when God gives them something, it no longer belongs to God. It belongs to them and that they can do with it whatever they please. And notice this, this wicked servant, he didn't spend the talent on himself. He didn't go out and hire, you know, dancers or, or, or use it for drinking or eating or throwing parties. He wasn't a thief. He wasn't a misappropriator of the money. No, no. He handled it. He didn't waste a bit of it. Yet, he didn't advance it for the Lord. Yet, because he did nothing good with the money, 
He was a wicked and unprofitable servant. He was just as bold as anything. And he comes back to the master and he says, Look, you have what is yours. He didn't think. He didn't work. He didn't even try. And all he did was make excuses. Master, you're so mighty, you don't even need me. So what's the response? Look at verse 26. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Therefore, you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers and at my coming, I would have received back my own with interest. Therefore, take the talent from him and give it to him who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away and cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The condemnation of the third servant, who here is called a wicked and lazy servant, that condemnation was strong. The sovereignty of the master never excused the laziness of the servant. No, instead... It condemned the laziness of the servant. It condemned it all the more. You knew that I reap where I don't sow. You knew that I gather where I have not scattered. Therefore, you should have worked all the harder. Listen, friends, those who don't work for the Lord or who don't pray or who don't evangelize because God is sovereign, they condemn themselves by their own laziness. By their actions or by their lack of action, they show that they're like the wicked servant in the parable. They don't know the master's heart at all. Now notice, the charge against the servant who merely buried his talent was that he was wicked and laziness, or wicked and lazy. And might I say that in today's world, we rarely see laziness as a real sin. We rarely see it as something that must be repented of before the Lord. Listen, if laziness were a calling, if laziness were a spiritual gift, then this man would have been excellent. But laziness isn't a calling. Laziness is not a spiritual gift. And if you think that's your spiritual gift, let me tell you, that's of the flesh and it's not of the spirit. No, laziness is a sin to be repented of. Instead, verse 27, you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers and at my coming I would have received back my own with interest. This man could have done something with what he had. Even if it had not doubled, it would have gained something, some interest for the master's money. And then he says something very interesting in verse 29, for to everyone who has, more will be given. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. There are people who have things, such as the servant who had one talent, but they hold them in such a way as if they had nothing. The, the one servant, excuse me, the one talent servant, he gets the money from the master, he goes and buries it in the ground, and he goes, and he lives his life as if he had no talents, right? Nothing from the master. He lives as if he had nothing. And these ones will find even what they had taken away. But those who hold what they've been given as faithful men and women, to them more will be given. I like something that F.B. Meyer said about this. He said, 
You don't need to wait for the great future to obtain this multiplication or this withdrawal of our talents. They are silently waxing or waning in our hands. Can I put that in simpler words for you? This is what F.B. F.B. Meyer meant. F.B. Meyer meant that right now your resources unto the Lord are multiplying or they're shrinking. Right now. Not in heaven, but right now. Right now, you're being faithful with what God has given you. And if you are being faithful with what God has given you, then you are gaining more and more from the Lord. But if you are being unfaithful and lazy with what God has given you, then you are giving less and less an ability to serve God. It is waxing that is growing or waning that is shrinking right now. I think that was a very insightful comment by F.B. Meyer. And then verse 30. Listen, if the foolish virgins were shut out and prohibited from entering, what happens to this unprofitable servant? Verse 30. Cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. Because he was wicked and lazy, the third servant demonstrated that he was not a true servant of the master at all. And it was fitting and every for him and for everyone who shows the same heart to be cast forever out of the master's presence. Now, just as much as there was a sense of heaven in the destiny for the two faithful servants, there is a strong sense of hell in the destiny for the wicked and lazy servant. In the larger context of Matthew chapter 25, the main point of this parable is clear. Our readiness for Jesus' return is determined by our stewardship of the resources that he's given us right now. Listen, if you knew for certain, I don't know how you would know, but let's just say you knew for certain, this is totally make-believe, but if you knew for certain that Jesus Christ was going to come for his church in one month, one month from today, you would be raptured up to the heaven and you would no longer walk this earth, but you would be in heaven with the Lord of glory. The worst thing you could do is say, all right, I'm going to take vacation for the next month. I'm going to go to Mallorca or, you know, the Canary Islands or something like that. I'm just going to relax and kick back. No, no, no. Listen, you might want to quit your job. But if you quit your job, you should give yourself to the service of God's kingdom more than ever before. I would say this, don't quit your job. Be busy working right where you're at and do your work faithfully and honorably unto the Lord to the utmost of your ability. Get busy with it right there where you're at. That is being faithful. That is being ready for the Lord's return. And this is exactly the point of the parable. That true spiritual readiness is making the most of whatever God has given you right here, right now. That is what it means to be ready for the Lord's return. Some people think that readiness for Jesus' return is a very spiritual, very abstract thing. It's just sort of this, this you know, strange spiritual feeling in my heart. Oh, I'm ready. No, it's not like that at all. It's a matter of being about our business for the Lord. Now, the final section of this chapter, not a parable. Look at it right here, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. 
All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats and he will set the sheep on his right hand but the goats on the left. You know, I have to say, when you think about this in the context, it blows my mind. Jesus here is just a few days from his crucifixion. Just a few days from this horrible shame of being crucified as not just a common criminal, but as a notorious criminal, an enemy of humanity. He's only a few days from the whipping, from the shame, from the insults, from the mocking he would endure on the cross. Now let me ask you a question. Did Jesus know that he was only a few days from this? Absolutely he did, right? He knew this. He knew that it was only a few days in the future. And yet, what does he say? Look at verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. Can I just say, that's pretty big talk for a man who's just about ready to be crucified. Jesus here was either guilty of what we would call megalomania. Do you know what megalomania is? Megalomania is a delusion about one's own power or importance. You know, they say, I've never met a person like this, but, you know, every once in a while you'll read some psychological journal, maybe just see it in a television, some guy who has the psychological delusion that he's Napoleon or Julius Caesar or some great, you know, famous, dedicated, you know, glorious man of the past. That's megalomania. And listen, Jesus here either was guilty of megalomania or he was indeed the Lord of glory who would judge the nations from his throne. Now, seemingly, this throne is present on the earth because it happens when the Son of Man comes in his glory. The Son of Man comes to the earth in glory and then he will judge the nations. But I'm fascinated by this. In three days he would be crucified, yet he said, when the Son of Man comes in his glory. At that time, he had around him a handful of disciples. One would betray him, one would deny him, and the others would forsake him. Yet he says, I'm going to have all the holy angels with me. And he lived in utter simplicity, almost poverty. And yet he was rejected by all the great and mighty men of the world. And yet he said, I'm going to sit on a throne of glory. Do you understand what I mean? Either Jesus was insane with megalomania, or he is the Lord of glory. Verse 32, he said, All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another. Again, make no mistake, Jesus is saying, All the nations will be gathered before me, and I will judge them. I will separate them. Now, this particular judgment seems distinct from the great white throne judgment described in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. In Revelation chapter 20, it describes all of humanity, in the strongest terms it describes all of humanity, coming and appearing before what it calls the great white throne of God in heaven for the final judgment. I have to tell you, that I believe that the judgment that Jesus describes here in Matthew chapter 24, excuse me, chapter 25, is not 
the final judgment is not the great white throne judgment. And I'm almost embarrassed as I say those words to you because almost every commentator that I read disagrees with me on that point. Almost every commentator regards this as being the final judgment, the judgment of the end times. Now, when I make my study and I find out that I am totally out of step with the vast majority of commentators, I don't like that. I don't like to be so out of step, but nevertheless, as I look at the biblical evidence, I have to say that I feel confirmed in my opinion on this. As I compare the great white throne judgment of Revelation chapter 20 and this judgment of the nations in Matthew chapter 25, I see them as distinct. I see them happening, first of all, at different times. The great white throne judgment of Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, clearly happens after the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ and his saints. The judgment of the nations, here in Matthew chapter 25, happens immediately after the glorious return of Jesus. It seems to happen in a different place. The great white throne judgment of Revelation chapter 20 happens in heaven. The judgment of the nations in Matthew chapter 25 happens on earth. And I would say that it happens unto different subjects. The great white throne judgment of Revelation chapter 20 emphatically includes all unredeemed men and women. The judgment of the nations in Matthew chapter 25 seems only to include the nations, that is, Gentiles who are judged in large measure based on their kindness and care towards, in part, the Jewish people, that is, my brethren. Now, it may be that the Jewish people who survive the Great Tribulation will not be in this judgment of the nations. And I would say, fourthly, that the two judgments happen on a different basis. And I'll talk about that in the following verses. But notice this. In verse 33, he says... He will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. The Son of Man, Jesus himself, has the authority to divide humanity in this judgment. There are not three categories. There's not uh, the sheep, the goats, and I don't know, the puppies or the kitty cats. There's not three categories. No, there's only two, sheep and goats, right and left. It's kind of interesting. They say that out in the Judean countryside, sheep and goats as a flock would mingle together during the day. But at night, they would have to be separated because the sheep can tolerate cool air, but goats have to be herded together for warmth. So you mix the flocks during the day, but at night, the shepherd would divide sheep from the goats and they would stay differently during the evening. Now, this division... In two groups, right and left, sheep and goats, that is true of the final judgment when when humanity will also be divided into two groups and in only two. Yet again, as I said, in the opinion that I hold, which is definitely a minority opinion, Jesus spoke here not of the final judgment, but of the separation that will happen after the glorious return but before the final judgment to deal with those who survived the Great Tribulation. Let me explain to you what I mean. 
by the end of the Great Tribulation, which is mentioned in Matthew chapter 24 and other passages, the population of the earth will be reduced by several factors. Now, what do they say the population of the earth is today? Six, seven, eight billion people, something like that? Let's just say that you had that figure of six, seven, or eight billion. Well, at the end of the Great Tribulation, that population would be greatly reduced. First of all, the rapture of the church is going to take away millions of believers from the earth, right? Secondly, the persecution and the martyrdom of many of those who believe on Jesus after the rapture of the church, during the Great Tribulation, that will also take many from the earth. Third, the terrible death and destruction of the Great Tribulation will take many people from the earth. The book of Revelation seems to describe it in terms of one-fourth of the population, sometimes one-third of the population. And think of that. During the Great Tribulation, one-fourth or one-third of the population of planet Earth being killed in the terrible catastrophes that will be poured out upon a God-rejecting world. And then finally... The catastrophe of the battle of Armageddon and Jesus' glorious return to the earth. That will take many from the earth. Nevertheless, one can assume that even with the greatness of all of those, there will still be many people, perhaps two or three billion people or more, remaining on the earth after Jesus returns in power and glory at the end of the last seven-year period. For example, among those will be the 144,000 who were specially sealed and preserved through the Great Tribulation and who stand with the Lamb of God on Mount Zion at his glorious return. You can find that in Revelation chapter 14. Now, it's fair to ask, what will happen with all those people who remain on planet Earth after Jesus Christ returns? What will happen to those two or three billion people who survive the Great Tribulation and Armageddon? They won't all be saved. They won't all be good people. What will happen to them as Jesus begins to establish his millennial kingdom on this earth? Well, this is what will happen. Jesus will judge the nations, and for some of them, that the individuals will be allowed to enter into his millennial earth. Those are the sheep. The goats will be denied entrance to the millennial earth, and they'll say, you go, well, you go to your destruction eternally. Look at the thing here, verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison or come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, Inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. 
I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, verse 34. What is the reward for those on his right hand? The sheep. Well, they enter into the Father's kingdom, which I believe is the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ on earth. They're granted entrance into this glorious millennial earth that Jesus will administer and his people will administer for him. Enter in. Why? Verse 35. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink, etc., etc. They were approved on the basis of their works. There's no mention of forgiveness. There's no mention of grace. There's no mention of forgiveness. Their judgment was based purely on their moral kindness. And Jesus says, Inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Now this is another clear distinction between the judgment of the nations here in Matthew 25 and the great white throne judgment of Revelation chapter 20. The great white throne judgment of Revelation 20 is based on what is written in the book of life. Here the book of life isn't mentioned. Here the book of life isn't even relevant. The judgment of the nations here in Matthew 25 is based on the humane treatment of other people, especially those known as the brethren of Jesus. Now, here's the great question. When Jesus said, my brethren, did he mean his Jewish brethren or did he mean his Christian brethren? And my answer to that would be yes. I believe he meant both. Why not, right? Especially Christians and the Jewish people who will be particularly hated and persecuted in the last half of the Great Tribulation. Listen, this will be a great reason for anybody who's on the earth in the Great Tribulation to not participate in the, in the persecution of Jews or Christians. Because when Jesus judges the nations, unless you want to get that one-way immediate passage to eternal destruction, you better treat the Jews and the Christians well because Jesus will be watching you and that will determine whether or not you're allowed to enter into his millennial kingdom. Now, I think that though the Christian and Jewish brethren of Jesus are first in his mind, knowing the nature of Jesus, couldn't we say that that includes every needy person? And what Jesus is saying is, into my millennial kingdom, I am going to bring the moral and the kind people of this earth, whether or not they have a direct faith in me, they, they will, for the most part, come to faith in me during the millennium, but only moral and kind people will populate my new kingdom. Now think about this. Think about a horrific, immoral, mass murderer who survives the Great Tribulation. 
Why should he be allowed to enter into the glorious millennial kingdom of Jesus? No. I think that's what this judgment is all about. This judgment is all about weeding out those who do not belong, those who would not fit on the glorious millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ as it reigns on this earth for a thousand years. Again, I just want to remind you, I am definitely in a minority opinion on this. Most people believe that this refers to the eternal judgment. But as I've explained to you, I simply see too many differences between the great white throne judgment of Revelation 20 and this judgment of the nations in Matthew chapter 25. But don't miss the point. In verse 45, Jesus says, this is speaking now to the goats, to those on his left hand who are condemned, inasmuch as you did not do it to the least of these, You did not do it to me. What was the charge against these lost ones? Not that there was any flagrant violation of a moral code, but their charge was of an indifferent attitude against Jesus and his people. Their indifference sealed their doom. They saw a needy person and they walked right by They saw somebody hungry, cold, naked, in prison, in need. And what did they do? They didn't care at all. They walked right by. I just want you to think about this for a minute. What was the problem with the foolish virgins? They didn't have something, right? They didn't have the oil they needed. What was the problem with the one servant who only had one talent? His problem was that he did nothing with it, right? What was the problem with these goats on the left hand who are condemned now and sent to eternal destruction? Their problem was that they did nothing. The guilt of these cursed people comes not so much from overtly doing something wrong as it was from the failure to do right. These were what we might call sins of omission, not sins of commission. Now, one other thing to say about this. And let me just read this to you from Matthew Poole, another one of our Puritan commentators that I consult from time to time. He says this, If those in the day of judgment shall be sent to hell who do not feed the poor members of Christ and give them to drink when they are thirsty, what shall be done to those who who pluck the bread out of the mouths which they have got in the sweat of their face and spill the drink which their own labors or others' liberality has given them to drink. If it shall go hard with those that clothe them not when they are naked, what shall become of those who in any way help to strip them naked? Do you get the point? Listen, if indifference brings a curse upon you, what about when you are actively cruel and vicious towards others, how much more that person will be under condemnation. Jesus said that doing nothing is enough to condemn you. What about those who steal and rob and mistreat and abuse and harm other people? So what does Jesus say? Verse 41. Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Isn't that interesting? That Jesus clearly points out that hell was prepared 
for the devil and his angels. Men only go to hell because they've willingly cast their lot with the devil and his angels. They've joined the devil in refusing to submit to the Lord. And so it's only right. They shared in his rebellion. Now they're going to share in his punishment. Now, One thing I think is interesting here is in verse 41 where it speaks of the everlasting fire. And then in verse 46 where it speaks of everlasting punishment. This uses an ancient Greek word, aeoninon. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correct, but I won't say it again just in case I've got it wrong. But the ancient Greek word that's translated there for everlasting fire and everlasting punishment literally means age long. Now because of this, some have thought that the suffering of the cursed is not eternal. And some of them suggest that the cursed are eventually rehabilitated and brought to heaven. That's the idea that everybody will be saved in the end. Other people think that those who are cursed have only an age-long suffering. In other words, they will eventually cease to exist. And this is the annihilation idea. By the way, you should know that the annihilation idea is becoming more popular in the Christian world. It's been around in the church almost from the beginning. Early Christian leaders, such as Origen, taught this idea that the damned don't suffer torment forever. They suffer torment for a period of time, and then they simply cease to exist. While I understand some of these arguments, I must say that at this point, I do not agree with them. You see, there are good reasons for believing that the sense of enanon in this passage is indeed eternal. First of all, when it refers in apocalyptic or prophetic passages, the word almost always has this idea of eternal, everlasting. But here's the even better reason. Look at what it says in verse 46. It says, And these will go away into everlasting punishment. That's the word age long but the righteous into eternal life. Now, do you think it's the same word used there in the original Greek? It absolutely is. The same word for everlasting, as it's translated in my New King James Version. The same word for everlasting is translated eternal in verse 46. Now, that seems to make a correspondence. If the pleasure and glory of heaven is eternal, then it would seem that the suffering and the torment of hell is also eternal. I have to say that this is a very difficult doctrine for some people to take in. It's a difficult doctrine for me to take in. The idea of eternal punishment for those who deny the Lord Jesus and who are cursed from him, That is a hard doctrine to take in. But yet I can say that in one sense, I can understand it under these terms. I can understand it under the terms that, first of all, nobody is rehabilitated in hell. Nobody is made into a saint in hell. 
Does anybody in hell lose their sin nature? Does anybody in hell become a better person because of it? No. And secondly, to understand this, that in hell there is never a perfect payment for sins made. And this is what I mean by that. Hell is a way for a person to pay the penalty for their sins. But they can never make a perfect payment because they are an imperfect being. And there's a principle that we learn from the scriptures. We learn it from the system of Old Testament sacrifice, that if a sacrifice is imperfect, it has to be repeated again and again and again without end. Only a perfect sacrifice can fulfill God's justice. Jesus Christ offered on the cross a perfect sacrifice for us. Absolutely perfect. Therefore, it only had to be offered once for all. No human being in hell can make a perfect payment for their sins. So they have to make a payment without end forever. Now, I agree. This is a difficult and a fearful doctrine. But I must tell you, I believe that that's exactly what the New Testament teaches. You see, verse 46 tells us everlasting punishment and eternal life. Now, the mention of eternal life here, this is the main reason why most people think that this story, that this description of the judgment between the sheep and the goats, the right hand and the left hand, that it refers to the judgment at the end of the age and not those who survive the great tribulation. But listen, those who do not enter the millennial kingdom, they will certainly go to everlasting punishment. And entrance into the millennial kingdom is the gateway to eternal life for those who remain. Just remember, the purpose of this judgment of the nations is to separate peoples before the beginning of Jesus' millennial kingdom. The wicked and the cruel will not enter, but the moral and the good will. Now, what does this say to us in conclusion? We'll just look at a survey of the entire chapter. Each one of these three sections warns us of the danger of doing nothing. Right? The, the foolish virgins, they didn't have the oil. The, the unfaithful servant with only one talent, he didn't do anything with what his master gave him. And the goats who were denied entrance into the millennial kingdom of God and sent to eternal destruction, they did nothing when they had the opportunity to be kind and compassionate. Lord, protect us from the sin of doing nothing. And if being prepared for the return of Jesus means anything, it means being a person who has an active, forward, doing, working walk with Jesus Christ, based on faith, but that faith expressing itself in real works, especially works of kindness and compassion to other people. That is the heart of the Lord, and that is readiness for the return of Christ. Well, Father, that's our prayer. Tonight we pray that you really would make us ready for the return of Jesus and to understand all that that readiness means, Lord. Lord, that readiness means looking forward. It means theological correctness. But more than those things, Lord, it means a living faith 
that expresses itself in real works, especially works of compassion and caring for other people. Help us to be ready for your return. In Jesus' name, amen.